All right, the Foghorn and you folks know what that means. It is time for the Cavalry Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, U.S. Navy saturation diving is back. More than 25 years after the capability for extended deep diving was eliminated, the commanding officer and one of the top divers of the Navy Experimental Diving Unit will be here to talk about what they do and how they just carried out a deep dive real-world job at a depth of 475 feet. But first, a quick roundup of naval news around the world. It has been a tough week for naval aviation on the U.S. West Coast. On June 3rd, Lieutenant Richard Bullock was killed when his F-A-18E Super Hornet crashed near Trona, California during a training mission. Bullock was from Strike Fighter Squadron 113. Five Marines of Marine Aircraft Group 39 were killed June 8th when their MV-22B Osprey crashed in a remote desert area northeast of Naval Air Facility El Centro in Southern California. The aircraft was from the 3rd Marine Aircraft Wing. And on June 9th, a Navy MH-60 Sierra helicopter crashed also near El Centro with four aboard. In this case, all survived, with one person suffering non-life-threatening injuries. The aircraft was from Helicopter Sea Combat Squadron 3, based at Naval Air Station North Island, California. The U.S. State Department on June 8th approved a possible foreign military sale to Taiwan of about $120 million in spare ship parts. The Taiwanese Navy operates several former U.S. Navy ships, including four missile destroyers. China immediately protested the arms sale, saying it would undermine China's security interests and damage peace and stability in the Taiwan Straits. Meanwhile, Chinese military aircraft have been flying aggressively close to those of several U.S. allies, including a Canadian aircraft monitoring North Korea and an Australian surveillance aircraft in the South China Sea drawing protests from both countries. And the Washington Post on June 8th first reported construction of a new Chinese-funded naval facility near an existing base in southern Cambodia, which would give the Chinese a base on the Gulf of Thailand. In naval war news, Ukraine's largest amphibious ship, the Polnachny C-class landing ship Yuri Olafarenko, was shown in a Russian drone video being attacked at sea on June 3rd by Russian shore-based artillery. No hits were shown on the Olafarenko in the video. The ship in April had been reported as captured by the Russians, but apparently that was an error, one of many, coming out of all sides in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. The summer naval exercise season is in full swing. NATO-led Baltops in the Baltic Sea began in earnest June 5th with more than 40 NATO and partner nation warships involved, even as the Russian Baltic fleet put about 20 ships to sea. In the Pacific, the large Valiant Shield joint exercise kicked off June 6th in the waters around Guam, the Marianas Islands, and Palau. The carriers Abraham Lincoln and Ronald Reagan are taking part along with the assault ship Tripoli, which is operating as a so-called lightning carrier with about two dozen Marine Corps F-35B lightning joint strike fighters embarked. A number of other scheduled exercises are also taking place in the Western Pacific, off the coast of Norway, in the Mediterranean Sea, and off Africa. And the RIMPAC, Rim of the Pacific exercise, the world's largest regularly scheduled naval exercise, is gearing up to begin June 29th out of Pearl Harbor and San Diego, running through August 4th. In new ship news, 
A keel ceremony was held June 4th for the Ballistic Missile Submarine District of Columbia at General Dynamics Electric Boats Facility at Quonset Point, Rhode Island. Hours before the ceremony, Navy Secretary Carlos del Toro announced the change of the ship's name from Columbia to District of Columbia, a change he said in a press release needed to avoid confusion with the Los Angeles-class attack submarine USS Columbia, SSN-771. The original ship's name, Columbia, was announced in December 2016, with the understanding that the missile submarine would not likely enter service before the older sub left a situation that apparently still has not changed. The change in name happened so fast, it did not allow shipbuilder General Dynamics time to modify the graphics used for the ceremony, only the name itself. And the new amphibious ship Richard M. McCool Jr., LPD-29, is to be christened June 11th at Huntington Ingalls Shipbuilding's Ingalls Shipyard in Pascagoula, Mississippi. The ship is the second Flight 1 Plus variant of the San Antonio LPD-17 class of amphibious transport docks. And in older ship news, British archaeologists have announced the discovery of the wreck of the warship Gloucester, sunk in 1682 after running aground on a sandbank off the Norfolk coast. The shipwreck was discovered in 2007, only identified in 2012, and not made public until now for security reasons. Thousands of artifacts have been recovered, ranging from cannon to the ship's bell to personal items. Maritime historians are calling the wreck the most important maritime find since the 16th century wreck of the Mary Rose. And that's just some of this week's Naval News. All right, we are truly excited today to have with us Commander Dustin Cunningham, Commanding Officer of the Navy Experimental Diving Unit, and Navy Diver Senior Chief Pete Kosminski. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. All right. So you guys did something pretty darn interesting and I think unique, especially in recent years. Uh, my understanding is at the end, end of May, you all did a job. You, your unit did a job off the coast of Santa Catalina Island in Southern California involving working at a depth of about 475 feet. That's pretty darn, darn, darn down there. I understand that's the deepest dive Navy divers have carried out in quite some years. Is that true? It is. Yeah. So how did this come about? What my, my understanding, this, this is like saturation diving, right? Which is where you, you uh, decompress, you, you, you pressurize yourselves to be able to work at extreme depths for, for, for quite some time. This is not an easy, easy thing to do at all. No, no. It takes a lot of, a lot of work involved, a lot of resources and planning. Um, it takes a really highly skilled group of uh, men um, to really get this job done. And yes, yeah, saturation diving is what we do and what we specialize in. Different from kind of your standard diving, what it takes is that uh, you pressurize a group of men who will be ultimately your divers for a, a long duration period, um, pressurize them to depth in the dry habitat. And from that dry habitat, in which they live in for the duration of the dive, you can then transfer those divers from a topside support diving vessel um, down into the depths of the ocean to do work via a diving bell. And then they can, they can do long duration dives at depth up to a thousand feet um, to accomplish all kinds of underwater um, requirements. This is a capability the Navy used to have, but they divested themselves of this, I believe in the 1990s, in the mid, mid late 90s. Uh, there was an effort to bring it back not too long ago, then it lost its funding. And now you're back again. Is that can, can you walk us through the history of saturation diving in the Navy? 
Um, sure. So it's really a cool story and fun to share. Um, like you said, in the late 90s, we kind of walked away from sat diving. Um, Navy lost her tremendous capability. We went from having the ability to put men on bottom up to depths of a thousand feet. Um, and once we lost that ability, we, we went to much more shallower applications of a max depth of, of 300 feet utilizing current um, surface supplied mixed gas diving techniques. So we lost almost um, 600 feet of capabilities, if you will. So yeah, so um, around 2012, um, we mothballed a, our last SATFADS saturation diving system. Um, we sent that oh. system up to Virginia. SATFADS, sat just, just, just real quick, SATFADS is a saturation flyaway diving system, right? It's, it's something you, to be able to put on an airplane, fly to wherever in the world you need it. That's, that's correct. So, so currently, Navy Experimental Diving Unit has a shore-based saturation diving system that we utilize, utilize for experimentation purposes, um, but we didn't have a deployable system. So that SATPAD system was our last deployable SAT system um, available for the Department of Defense. So when that went away, we lost that capability. Um, and then some much smarter men than myself uh, got together, realized that we needed to get that back. It was too much of a loss of resources. So they got together, um, they put the team from um, NEDU together, and they went and they went and got that system back from up in Virginia. Uh, it was kind of funny. It was literally sitting out in a field. Um, a family of raccoons had kind of taken over <laughs> maintenance and responsibilities of that system. <laughs> Uh, Our guys went back up there, shoot those raccoons out of there, um, uh, busted some rust off, did the maintenance, got that system up and, and running and brought it back down to Panama City. And we've now spent over the last five years recertifying um, not only the system itself, but um, uh, qualifying of the men and women that are now operating that system. Like this is no, uh, you know, you can take it out of the box, read the instruction manual, and get rolling on saturation diving. It takes a, a highly trained and highly skilled group of people to operate and run this system. And, and that's really what we've done over the last five years is, is put that team together to, um, to get the dive that you were just referring to um, accomplished um, on time and successfully. So you talked about, you know, being in the preparatory space um, for several days, right? Um, uh, as your body gets uh, uh, ready for this type of dive, can you kind of explain that process a little bit more? You know, what, what's that like? What is, um, what are the accommodations like? What is, how, what does that feel like on your body? How do you make your way to the dive bell? And what's it like to go down, you know, that many hundred feet in the dive bell? Sure thing. Um, so it starts out, uh, divers enter the recompression chamber. I guess the best descriptive, descriptive uh, I could give would be we have a, a two-system recompression chamber. One side is about 12, 15 feet long, um, and it's about seven feet in diameter. An average six-foot man could stand up in most places straight, but would bump his head on several items if he decided to walk back and forth. That live-in chamber has six bunks in it. 
um, very small, kind of your average, they'd be the same equivalent of your standard Navy ship or Navy submarine. So really tight quarters, holds up to six people. And then there's a smaller chamber that transfers us um, into the diving bell, which would be a third chamber I'll get to in just a minute. And that uh, transfer chamber has um, the toilet, the shower, the sink. Um, that's where we get cleaned up, clean our gear, et cetera. And that space is probably about seven, eight feet long and with the equivalent seven, about seven feet in diameter. So tight, tight quarters. Six men living in there is, um, you don't have much room to work in. So those of us that had shipboard accommodations and complained, we really have nothing to complain about, you know, <laughs> yeah, given what you guys were living in for a couple of days. Yeah, it's pretty tight. You know, you got to you got to be really close with the, with the people you're in there with. Commander, what um, what was it like to sort of begin to do this mission again for for your for your uh, folks? I mean, you know, obviously you, you guys are sort of uh, at the top of the diving game. But what was it like to start to do this mission? Um, and then tell me a little bit about or tell us a little bit about how this mission came to be. Yeah. So, I mean, if you go way back to what senior chief was talking about, it was, you know, uh, getting getting enough of the uh, momentum to get the system back out of layup. Right. And then what we did around the same time was under the experimental diving unit, we created a second command. So underneath, uh, you know, NEDU the umbrella is the NEDU saturation detachment. And that's what senior chief is a member of. So what we did this time around that we didn't do in the years past was make it a, 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 a manned uh, team assigned to the system before it was kind of more ad hoc. So that was the first thing in terms of prepping to get to where we are today. We, we set aside, you know, 23 billets uh, to be able to staff and support and operate the system. So that was a huge first step. Um, so, you know, over the years we've been training and we, and, and there's some other stuff out there, you know, I've seen some of the comments with this uh, in the media, uh, social media posts, we, we have done deeper dives. The big thing here was this was our first deep working dive that we did for a customer who needed a mission accomplished before we just did training. Uh, as Senior Chief mentioned, we were recertifying the system to be used. So a lot of that um, was just kind of doing sets and reps of practice uh, for what we were able to go out and accomplish in, in Catalina. You did this. So this, this was not a planned evolution, right? You were, so you're, you're based in Panama city, but you were out in North Island, San Diego, um, California. You were doing what certifications, a need came up from um, the underwater rescue, the, I'm sorry, the Navy's undersea rescue command who has a training facility out there that needed work and they, they were not getting the job done. And somehow you found out about it. Somehow you, you got involved and you went down to do it. Yeah. So the team was already out there. I, I came out, the team had been out training uh, and, and, and setting up the system on the, the ship uh, that undersea rescue command uses the host dominator. Uh, it's a MSC contracted ship. So they were already out there doing work uh, and, and doing a lot of training their peer side. I was showing up to be able to hitch a ride and, and watch the team work and, and do the training evolution underway. And yeah, we were, we were doing our own thing alongside a URC when they were doing ROV operations uh, and they were struggling a little bit and getting that uh, the structure clean that we'll talk about. That was a huge priority for them. And they said, Hey, you know, what would be in the realm of possible if we reset over the weekend and we came back out for you guys to, uh, 
to tackle this this deeper dive. And you know, I look to uh, the master divers in the OIC that I have that uh, that that lead the detachment. Uh, guys like Senior Chief Kosminski, it's like, hey, we want to go do this. Let's do it right now. So we we table topped it and uh, took the long weekend there over the Memorial holiday right. to uh, to reset and, and and plan our dive. Right. Everyone else was uh, enjoying the long weekend. We were working and uh, and uh, we were able to find a plan that would would allow us to do it safely and and go down and execute. So, Senior Chief, what was the job? What, what, what did you go down to do? What were you working on? So sure thing. So um, Undersea Rescue Command has a, a testing platform um, sitting at the bottom at roughly 500 feet that they utilize uh, for training. What it consists of is about a 15 foot tall steel structure with two eight by eight flat steel surfaces. And on those steel surfaces um, are mock submarine hatches. One sitting um, horizontally to the bottom and the other one sitting at about a 45 degree angle. And those are two positions that they train to mate their ROV or mini submarine, rescue submarine up to in the event of a downed submarine. So because of course it's sitting in the bottom of salt water over time, that thing has all kinds of growth and plant life that you know tends to stick to and grow to it, which will ruin its ability to get a seal when one of their ROVs or, or mini submarines um, tries to attach to it. So they had sent down the ROV several times to try to get that accomplished. The growth was um, too overwhelming for the machine. So they just needed human hands to go down there and, and do the dirty work. So luckily um, in our case, uh, yeah, we were there standing by and, and absolutely willing and ready to go do that work for them. And in addition to the work, because you guys are Navy folks, you didn't just go down there and do the job. What what else did you do while you were almost 500 feet below the surface of the ocean? Are you talking about me specifically? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, you know, again, icing on the cake of what was a really, really cool job to begin with. Um, I took the opportunity to go ahead and reenlist in the Navy for four more years while I was down there at, uh, at almost 500 feet, which... You know, amongst a, a career of great things, that was that probably tops the list for me as one of the neatest things I got to do. We have some pictures that you guys provided that we'll, we will embed in the body of the, uh, on the website, uh, in the body of the write-up of the podcast so folks uh, can see it. It's pretty cool. There you are, Senior Chief, with uh, the American flag and, you know, doing your reenlistment. I have to say that I've heard of people doing it in a variety of different places, uh, that's got to be one of the coolest ones uh, at, at that depth. You, you definitely have a story over many younger divers that I'm, you know you you mentor and uh, you, you know help around the command. Yeah, it was it was pretty hoo to say the least. Yeah. So I mean, a little can you tell us a little bit about about the unit. So NEDU, you're not you're not a big unit at all. Was it 24 people? Is that right? 19 divers, something like that. So for our detachment, the NSD, Navy Saturation Detachment, that's correct. We're um, almost 25 strong, 19 active duty divers. Um, we have one uh, active duty electrician uh, that helps out tremendously on our team. And then we have four current civilians that um, help out as well. Um, they are some of our subject matter experts when it comes to the hydraulic portion of our system, um, electronic portions of our system, and and they're kind of our continuity as well for a uh, long-term, um, you know, 
kind of tribal knowledge about the system that helps us pass on to the new guys as they come um, the knowledge required to keep this thing up and running. So yeah, 25 total, 19 divers. Um, and yeah, that was, that's about it. So Commander Cunningham, you all just, just, just to put you in the Navy, uh, you work for a supervisor of salvage soup salve, which is part of NAVC Naval Sea Systems Command. Um, operationally, who reaches is, is now that you have this capability and you're certified again, are people already assigning you, tasking you to missions where you're using this classified and unclassified? Yeah, so we do work directly for uh, the supervisor of salvage and diving uh, out of, of out of Naval Sea Systems Command. Um, and right now we do have some things lined up, um, I guess, to answer the first part of your question, we could get tasks from a fleet commander. If they had a requirement, uh, they can always reach back to supervisor of salvage and diving, um, for salvage support, uh, or diving support. So we would be one of the tools in that toolbox for the fleet commanders to use. If they had a, a mission that, uh, met our, met our requirements that we could go execute for them, uh, would be standing by ready to go. And that tasking would come through from say pack fleet or, or fifth fleet or whoever uh, would come over to uh, supervisor salvage and nav C. And then uh, they would task us to go execute uh, and dive. Earlier in the podcast, you meant you guys mentioned that, you know, we had this capability. Um, it went away in the nineties. Now we bring it back. Why is that? I mean, is that a, is that a geopolitical thing? Was it a technology thing? I mean, you know, what, why did this technology go away? And then why now did we bring it back? I should have asked that a little bit earlier, but I, just as we're kind of, you know, going through this whole story, what, what, what benefit is it bringing this back now? And sort of what was the impetus of that? I, I can't speak to the exact context of why we decided to get rid of it uh, in the nineties. A lot of it was tied to the submarine rescue ships that we had. A lot of those were end of end of life. And there was a couple of those, the pigeon, for example, those all had sat diving systems on them. So once those all kind of got wrapped up, the Navy kind of overall was salvage and some of those submarine support ships, they all kind of went away, right? We started transitioning to a lot of the MSC model we see today, where some of those auxiliary ships are supported through them, uh, vice uh, fully Navy uh, crew. Um, so some of it was probably uh, wrapped up in that. Um, we've always maintained here at NEDU, we've got our shore system, the ocean simulation facility uh, to do shore side diving. So we can simulate uh, being underwater at depths up to a thousand feet with divers inside. So the operational, the deployable saturation went away. Um, we retained ours and then we tried this effort initially uh, in 2011 to get everything sorted out and uh, just kind of ran into the funding. Uh, you know, the, the climate there, uh, just didn't really, there wasn't really a big appetite uh, to fund that. Um, but after a couple of years, we realized that there's a lot of work to be done. And it's, you know, you look at things like the the cursed submarine uh, that went down, right? Everyone's familiar with that. Um, you know, sat divers worked on that to to help bring those pieces up, right? So I think we saw a couple of different things happen where it's, it's a nice thing to have. And, and we obviously wanted to bring it back. So that's where we've been. I think there's a lot of stuff out there. Um, we, we, you're asking some other missions. Uh, we're actually getting ready to go out at the uh, beginning of the next year in January uh, to work with uh, DPAA for uh, uh, remains recovery, bringing back the, uh, the personnel accountability office, right? And there's a heaven can wait uh, airplane bomber 
that went down off of Papua New Guinea. So we're going to be able to dive uh, and work on that site for a couple, you know, almost a couple months to bring back uh, some of our our uh, our fallen shipmates uh, uh, for them. So uh, that's kind of our first big task we have coming up and also some work uh, in the in the future with uh, NOAA doing some coral reef restoration stuff that's deep. Uh, that they uh, they've asked us to do and take on, and that'll likely be at the later part of uh, of next year, 2023. Well, gentlemen, this has been really interesting, really uh, informative. Um, again, have all the respect in the world for what you do, and and you just talked about one of the missions that is uh, pretty macabre, and yet an awful lot of people really appreciate it, which is uh, rec- re- the recovery of remains from um, from aircraft and from ships, and uh, that's. That, that it takes a it takes a special head to do that stuff and uh, it takes a special head to do what you guys do anyway so thank you very much for being here uh folks we've been talking today with uh navy diver senior chief pete kosminski commander dustin cunningham uh, of the navy experimental diving unit nedu based out of panama city florida thank you very much for being here gentlemen thank you thank you chris now hear this now hear this all right, you know what that means. It's time for Squawk Box. And this week, Mr. Cavus talks about the veterans of the greatest generation. I had the chance last week to attend a dinner commemorating the 1942 Battle of Midway. Like many annual affairs, it was the first get-together in three years since the advent of the pandemic. The dinner has, the dinner has routinely honored, in person, veterans of the battle. The last time, five veterans were in attendance. This time, there was only one. Two had died, two were too infirm to make the trip, but we were lucky to have Chief Yeoman Bill Norberg with us, sharp, spry, convivial as always. At 99, he'll turn 100 this November. Don Casey was another veteran I knew. He'd married my mother's cousin many, many, many moons ago, and I knew him as a friendly, easygoing North Carolina hardware store owner and volunteer firefighter. He was also a World War II veteran who never missed the chance to talk about his experiences. He came ashore on June 6th at Normandy's Normandy's Utah Beach with the U.S. Army's 238th Engineer Combat Battalion. Fighting his way into Germany, he was wounded by a landmine in February 1945. After the war, he attended the 238th's very first reunion and never missed one. Eventually, he was the unit's last survivor. And he often, often told me that he wanted to be the last World War II survivor. But on June 6th, yes, the anniversary of D-Day, he joined that last big reunion in the sky. He was five weeks short of turning 100. Today, there are fewer than 240,000 U.S. military World War II veterans still alive, according to the VA, out of 16 million who were in uniform during that conflict. 234 World War II vets die every day. In four years, it's estimated there will only be about 50,000 left. And after that, well, I have always been a sucker for sea stories from those who served, from old time journalists and broadcasters, from folks who simply were there and did that. Hearing of and thinking about the experiences of those who went before us not only helps to remember them, it enriches our own lives. Listen to them, ask them, and most of all, support them. Take advantage of these people while they're here. No one lasts forever. All right. Well, that does it for this week's, and that's it for show 52. And yes, that's number 52. This is the, we've now completed a full year 
of the Canvas Ships podcast. And I, I'm, I got to say right now, thank you to my buddy, my partner, Chris Cervello, who without, I, without Chris, uh, this never would have happened. It's been a real pleasure. It's been darn fun working with you. And I look forward to every, every moment we have in the future to keep this going. Here, here. Let's, uh, let's do another year. All right. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.